0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. Today I'm joined by Walden Bello, academic, author, human rights campaigner and former member of the Philippine House of Representatives, who joins us today to discuss the history of the Philippines, his opposition to the brutal Marcos dictatorship, his long-standing campaigning against US imperialism and neoliberal globalisation, including breaking into the offices of the World Bank to steal confidential documents, and how COVID-19 is affecting the Philippines. As you know, our funding for the first few episodes comes from the Lipman Miliband Trust. They're a brilliant organisation and you can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Miliband. But we need to build up our subscriber base if we're going to make this sustainable over the long run. So if you're just as excited to listen to this podcast as we are to bring it to you, you can sign up as a patron on patreon.com slash pod. That's patreon.com slash pod. You'll get access to exclusive content and behind-the-scenes action from all our episodes and the chance to influence the future direction of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating if you're a fan. Also make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for updates. All with the handle at a world to win pod. Now, without further ado, I give you the first section of the show, the rundown, where Walden Bello and I discuss the coronavirus in the Philippines and the growing discontent with President Duterte. So hello Walden Bellow and thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win. Um, We're going to start the show with the rundown where we're going to discuss a few news stories of relevance to your life and work that have caught our eye this week.
1: Okay, sure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: (laughs) No, thanks for coming. So there's a story here from Al Jazeera, which says Philippines faces the worst COVID-19 crisis in Southeast Asia and the government's imposed one of the world's strictest lockdowns in response. Why do you think the crisis has been so severe in the Philippines and has the government been doing enough to combat it?
1: Well, um, the government has the wrong approach and it's been treating fighting the virus like a military campaign, basically using coercive measures, telling people to do this, arresting people for violations of curfew. Just, you know, it's a bullet against the virus and obviously that doesn't. Work. And um, if you look at what's happened in neighboring countries like Thailand, uh, where they've contained the virus, and Vietnam, where, you know, very few deaths, and uh, the same thing in Thailand, Malaysia. So the the levels of infection are very, very low in neighboring countries with the exception of Indonesia, and deaths are extremely low. But in the Philippines, it's now hitting 3,000 and infections are rising to 200,000. So it's a disaster, and the uh, government at this point in time seems like it's given up the fight and the latest statement of the president is, hey guys, let's just wait for a vaccine from China or from Russia. And so this has created a tremendous alarm in the population because there's no leadership at this point in time. And the people on the front lines, the healthcare workers, uh, when they complained and they said they needed a comprehensive strategy such as you found in the countries that have successfully contained COVID, Uh, The response of the president, Duterte, has been, oh, you guys are complaining uh, if you want to declare a revolution against me, I'm waiting for you, you know, so let's have it. So that kind of crazy response to people who are just asking for a strategy shows that the government has lost it. And in fact, the president has fled Manila, where the virus is most intense, to go back to his hometown in the south of the Philippines, Davao City, and he's been holed up there for about three weeks. So it's gotten to the point where the vice president had to step in on Monday, and uh, she said that we are ready to take over leadership if the president can't provide it. So It's a series of mishaps. And the real problem, I think, Grace, is that the virus containment is not a priority, despite what the government says. But it's the enhancement of authoritarian power, uh, basically passing the so-called Anti-Terrorist Act, taking over the country's biggest television network, sentencing uh, dissenting journalists, convicting them. You know, so these are the priorities. So if those are your priorities, uh, you can't do a decent job containing the virus. So this is the problem. It's a political problem, not a public health problem.
0: That is a fascinating take on it, Walden. Because I've spoken to several people now who've said that in many dictatorships and many authoritarian states, the virus has come as something as a gift to leaders who were looking for an excuse to kind of clamp down on dissent. And this has been the threat that they needed to kind of, as you say, mobilise this like military response. But um, I guess the the issue that we've got here and the issue that we've got now, especially in the context of this really severe lockdown that's been imposed, is that the economic impact in the Philippines has been huge. We have this story from Reuters saying the Philippines fears for the economy as as a tough lockdown returns. And we've seen a, a record fall in GDP in the second quarter. This year of sixteen point five percent. This is kind of a, you know, a massive economic shock, and I'm just wondering what you think about a) how this is being felt on the ground, what the political impact is going to be, and b) what should be being done in response.
1: Well, the economic impact, as you said, the sixteen percent drop in GDP is you know something that's really really huge. There is one estimate that the, you know about fifty percent of jobs have been lost okay and the government's response to that is thank god it wasn't 100% okay so wow. and the our biggest export earner which is overseas workers that you know provide something like around 25% of export income because labor is our main export they basically lost their jobs and have headed back home so it's this uh, kind of uh, unraveling that's happening Now, the thing is that people are beginning to really resist, you know. There's a great deal of dissatisfaction with the inability of the government to do anything constructive about this. And the call for the president to resign has been catching on. And the internet has been uh, very much filled with people's anger to the point that you know, two days ago, the president came out on television basically saying, you know, we're not perfect. The government, you know, you know, there are many things that uh, we haven't been able to do. But the response that he gave that to us, just wait for the vaccine is the kind of response that is going to infuriate people even more. So my sense is that discontent and dissatisfaction on the ground is uh, increasing and, you know, this president always, he, he has based his actions mainly on his past great popularity. Uh, you know, he has a sort of a gangster charisma. And, uh, you know, basically people were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because of their feeling that, uh, you know, here's a guy who is finally going to change things despite the fact that he has all this gangster approach to things. But now that's gone because of the gross incompetence with which he has managed this. And with that popular support gone, I think that it's only a matter of time because unless you have popular legitimacy, uh, you can't rely on the security forces alone or the elites because once they see that your basic source of legitimacy is gone, which is popular support expressed in elections and in surveys, they'll begin to think twice about backing you up. So over the last month uh, in particular, the voices of resistance have become louder and louder in the country. So yes, this uh, authoritarians like uh, Modi and Orban in Hungary, Modi in India, Duterte in the Philippines, yes, they've tried to take advantage of this, to consolidate their power. But there's now a backlash.
0: Just staying on the economic impact for a moment. Sure. Because obviously the, the Philippines has had a big loan from the World Bank. They've had their credit rating downgraded. How concerned are you that that debt crisis and related to the kind of international legitimacy perhaps the government might rely on is going to be eroded, potentially creating kind of longer-term economic problems. Well,
1: clearly, the more we get loans from the IMF and you know the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, although these loans may not come with the conditionalities that might come with the regular loans. Nevertheless, what you're doing is you're piling up a lot of debt, and this debt will have to be. Uh, repaid and um you know so far the crisis of developing country governments and um, people in the global south has been you know we need to forgive the debts that that we have not only convert what you're giving us now into grants but the debts that we're paying to the multilateral agencies as well as to private banks uh, need to be forgiven at this point in time and that's not a move that's been accepted by the group of 20. And, you know, in in terms of the Philippines in particular, even the government appealing to the bank and to the multilateral lenders and to the private businesses, you know, that, hey, we need debt forgiveness. It's not even doing that because it's thinking is very much neoliberal, And that debt forgiveness, from their Mm -hmm. point of view, is just, cries for debt forgiveness is just going to impact negatively on foreign investment coming in. That's the way they think. So they're not really, really pushing it at this point. At the same time, if you have limited resources, what you do is, you know, the resources you get, you pour into the front lines of containing the pandemic, and while the Philippine government has done some of that, obviously it could do more, like reallocating the military budget, cutting it by one half, and putting that half into the front lines against the uh, the virus. The same thing with the security budget. The same thing with what we call presidential intelligence funds, and you know the Department of Finance and a number of different agencies. Uh, you, you can actually quite creatively move things around so that you can create this big public health budget and at the same time be able to provide some degree of effective assistance for social amelioration for families that are now suffering. But that's not happening. And uh, in fact, what little spending that the government has had directed at COVID has been only half that of its neighbors in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Thailand. And so it's been a coming together of the problems that have been bugging the Philippines even before COVID, the debt crisis, the neoliberal kind of thinking, the devoting of most of the resources to security and the military. All of these wrong priorities are coming together in a hellish sort of way. And uh, you know this is why we now have the situation of a leaderless country in terms of containing COVID that you have in the Philippines. And it has really eroded the legitimacy of this government. And once that goes, uh, it's just a matter of time. Uh, unfortunately, mm. it's taken a virus to do that, but we all have been puzzled by how these people have been able to harness people's discontent and have this kind of charisma that people are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, I think what's happening now Mm. is that people are basically pulling back. The scales are falling from their eyes and they're basically saying, wow, how could we ever have fallen for this guy whose only real skill is mass murder? You know, 27,000. Um, people subjected to extrajudicial execution over the last four years.
0: We're going into the second section of the show now, the deep dive, where we discuss your life and work. And you obviously know a lot about this issue of resisting authoritarianism, because You know, if there's anyone who has insights about resisting dictatorship, it's you. You've had this incredible life. Uh, And I'm going to try and list the achievements that I've found. um, But you'll have to correct me if I've missed anything. So you were obviously born in the Philippines. Uh, You studied in Chile and were there when Allende was overthrown. And when Marcos came to power in the Philippines. Um, You then became part of the movement against the Marcos regime. Um, And you were a teacher at UC Berkeley at the time. And you were arrested after attempting to lead a takeover of the Philippine consulate in San Francisco, only to go on a hunger strike in an attempt to bring the world's attention to the brutal repression taking place under Marcos. So you've been instrumental since then in decrying the support provided by both the US and international financial institutions to the Marcos regime including breaking into World Bank headquarters to steal documents that would reveal the IMF's support for Marcos, which is incredible. Um, You've played a huge role in the alter-globalisation movement. You were at the Seattle protests, where you were beaten by police at Genoa, and at a variety of other summits. And you then became a member of the House of Representatives in the Philippines and served for five years. And during that time, you've also written eight books, as well as being awarded the Right Livelihood Award, which is described as a kind of alternative Nobel Prize. Have I missed anything? Because that is quite a list.
1: Yeah, it's just uh, <laughs> yes, a correction. It's uh, 25. Oh, please. It's 25 books.
0: 25 books. Right. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I mean, that's just incredible. Um Many listeners probably won't be that familiar with the events that took place in the Philippines in, in and around the kind of 1970s. I only have the vaguest kind of understanding of it myself. So can you talk to us a little bit about the emergence of the Marcos regime and its authoritarian slide? Because I believe it's been called one of the most corrupt administrations in the world.
1: Yeah, well, the Marcos government, uh, which you know became a dictatorship in 1972, was part of a swing towards dictatorships in the global South, beginning with the Brazilian military coup in 1964 until around 1986, 87, okay? And when we had democracies restored, a great number of the restorations taking place through popular uprisings, like the Philippines, for instance, in 1986. And basically... In a nutshell, the Marcos government was abolished constitutional rights, the freedom of the press, assembly, and became a real full-blown dictatorship. And it was supported with a great deal of money from the World Bank and also militarily by the United States. So it was quite unpopular and uh, it generated a lot of resistance And it was, yes, very corrupt. Billions of dollars were taken out of the country and stored in Swiss and American banks. The uh, first lady of the Philippines, Imelda Marcos, became a synonym for extravagance on the part of rulers. So the U.S. support was quite important. And when the U.S. withdrew that support in the mid-'80s, it was one of the conditions whereby Marcos fell when a popular uprising emerged. And that was it. That was the character of this regime. So this was a very bleak period in the Philippines. And it was part of that bleak period in the global south where dictatorships replaced formal democracies. And you know, this was basically the period from nineteen sixty-four. In the Philippines, it began in nineteen seventy-two. And It ended in the mid-80s with the restoration of constitutional democracies.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you spoke a little bit there about the support of the United States for this horrific regime. And you've obviously played a big role in kind of exposing the support given by the U.S. and also the, the international financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank for supporting the Marcos regime. Can you talk a little bit more about that and also the kind of longer links between the US and the Philippines? Because obviously the US colonized the Philippines, and that isn't something that even a lot of Americans know to this day.
1: Ah, oh, yes. Well, the Philippines, uh, you know, was one of the first uh, formal colonies of the United States. It was taken over in 1899. There was a war of liberation against the US occupation after Spain was defeated by the insurgent forces. The Americans came in and uh, there was a period of uh, pacification in the Philippines where about 500,000 people died. Um, and it was a very brutal occupation by the U.S. Then we were a colony from 1899 to 1946. At that point, the U.S. basically engineered a neo-colonial regime. It put elites that are fairly close to the United States in power. And we had a sort of a U.S.-style democratic system that was very much controlled by the elites. And it was, you know, the, the U.S. was very central to the life of politics in the Philippines. And the Central Intelligence Agency was always present. So basically, Marcos sort of promoted himself as the best friend of the United States who would protect U.S. security interests, including two big military bases in the Philippines. And when he came to power in 1972, the U.S. got the World Bank involved in building up this authoritarian regime. So most of the aid to Marco's Came to the World Bank, and it was basically a kind of uh, building an authoritarian system from above. And Robert McNamara, the guy who ran the Defense Department and then became World Bank chief, was very centrally involved. So there was this image that they wanted to transform the Philippines into this kind of developmental capitalist country with an authoritarian leadership, and so. Basically, what I and a number of people felt that we couldn't get any decent information about what was happening with all these loans going to the Philippines, what was the development model and all of that. And we felt that the only way to do this was, uh, you know, we had to break into the World Bank and get all the documents that we could. And we did that over a couple of, I would say, about three years. We got about 6,000 pages and we put that all together and we had this big exposé that uh, helped you know people said that it helped in a major way in exposing the kind of political economy of dictatorship and the role of the United States and the World Bank and really helped politicize a lot of people and contributed to the overthrow of the regime so so that was in in terms of the what people associate me with is that book, it was called Development, the of the World Bank in the Philippines. And it was based on this 6,000 pages of secret documents. Every footnote uh, was there. So there was just no way that the bank and its allies could refute it because uh, it was all their internal documents. So, and as far as I know, it's the it's been the only sustained um, study of a program of the World Bank in developing countries. And uh, the reason theres it's very rare that that happens is because the World Bank is very jealous about its documents. Mm. It's even more jealous than the U.S. government. You can't have a Freedom of Information Act. So the only way you can do that is by breaking into the uh, bank. And we basically did not reveal that. We broke into the bank until after about 10 years after we did it, after the statute of limitations for robbery and theft was over in the United States. So we were able to reveal that, you know, this was a case of theft in the interest of uh, democracy uh, for our country. So that was, uh, you know, that that was the... That was the bank. Now, of course, um, nowadays you don't break into the bank; you just are able to do it electronically. If you can, you know, hack. <laughs> you know, it's become a question of hacking into, you know, the systems. Back then, though, you took a lot of risk entering the the World Bank is no easy task. So we we had to pretend like we were bank employees coming back from a mission in Africa or that sort of thing. So uh, we were just lucky that our techniques work. Uh, we hit the bank on those days where there was nobody there, absolutely nobody there, because those were the times that Americans and Christians celebrated their holidays, like Christmas Day and the July 4th in the United States. And Memorial Day, so when there's absolutely nobody in this ten thousand employee institution, uh, those are the times that we went in to to the bank. That's how exposés were done then, which is about forty years ago.
0: It sounds it sounds much kind of cooler and yeah, more cloak and dagger than hacking. But I suppose you're right; that is how you would have to do the same thing today. Yeah. So, yeah. The next question I want to ask you is. Linked to that, linked to that that, um, discussion of tactics, you've obviously got extensive experience with various forms of direct action in your opposition to both the Marcos regime and also the the international financial institutions throughout your career from hunger strikes to, as you say, breaking into um, the World Bank offices. So what do you think... Were the most effective tactics that you've used throughout your career? And what do you think that says about how activists should be thinking about um, their, their tactics and strategies of kind of resistance to governments and to capitalism more generally today?
1: Well, let me put it this way. Um, uh, when I was um, in opposition to Marcos, I was part of, you know, an underground organisation uh, this was the communist party of the philippines and i was active in its overseas wing and we were organizing at so many different levels uh, including pushing for the us congress to cut off aid we were organizing communities abroad we were organizing to influence say the the british government to cut off aid so we had a there was a fairly sophisticated kind of underground And I would say that that was very important uh, during the Marcos period. The kind of discipline that communist parties and the Communist Party of the Philippines, for instance, was able to achieve was extremely important. Because, you know, what you were facing was the savage fist of a dictatorship. You know, so it was very important to have different kinds of resistance from underground resistance to armed resistance to demonstrations and and that sort of thing. So I must say that that kind of organizing uh, in which you are part of a larger organization that's very disciplined was very important. Now, it also had its drawbacks in the sense, you know, that – you know, you, it it was wedded to a certain kind of uh, theory of social change. That it was wedded to the idea that uh, that the United States would never abandon Marcos. That elections were useless because they would just be stolen by the dictatorship. Uh, and because it was so rigid in terms of its ideas about how change would take place, it became a bystander when there was a popular insurrection that finally overthrew Marcos in 1986 and this is this is the problem with organizations like communist parties because they get wedded to a theory and then when reality goes a different way they can't move quickly enough and so that's that's the problem the second problem with the communist party of the philippines unfortunately like many marxist leninist parties it was not able to avoid this, a purge that took place within its ranks, which resulted in so many people being killed because they were suspected of being military agents. And anyway, the, the, the problem is that there was no system of justice. And for those reasons, I left the party back in the late 80s because I thought that it was, you know, this was already a period when Marcos was gone and you needed a new approach to things and i didn't think that the party provided that anymore so i uh, became very active in terms of not only in the philippines but in the movement against the world bank and the imf and the anti-globalization movement that was emerging in the late, in the 1990s and early 2000s the knots You know, so here I think it was very important to be able to, you know, have direct actions, especially during periods uh, when these international organizations or international corporations, you know, had their big meetings like the G7 or the G10, the meeting in Genoa back in 2001. So the idea was to. There was no big plan, but basically it was masses of people concentrated at certain key points historically and in certain places, you know, that became very decisive. So Seattle in 1999, for instance, uh, the World Trade Organization was never able to recover from the massive opposition in Seattle that took place. We were able to, you know, working across borders, target the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the IMF, and contribute to a delegitimation process was very important. So we also need to realize that, that there are phases to this. Uh, for instance, the anti-globalization movement, after successfully stalemating the World Trade Organization, unfortunately, 9-11 happened. And 9-11 basically took the wind out of the sails because basically what happened there was terrorism became the big agenda item. And the progressive movement was not able to really recover until the 2008-2009 financial crisis, which then led to the, the emergence of the Occupy movement in the United States, the indignados in Spain. And you know, uh, Syriza in Greece, and that of course dovetailed into the growth into the global resistance against the war in Iraq. You know, so you know, I, I would say therefore that that phase whereby the left was able to regain the initiative lasted for a bit, but unfortunately, I think that the anti-globalization movement or the alter-globalization movement, unfortunately, it got derailed uh, because the social democratic parties in Europe, including the Labour Party in Britain, uh, were identified with the kind of neoliberal policies that uh, had been imposed during the period leading up to 2008-2009 crisis. And, And after that, And um, because of that, a lot of our critiques, um, the the critique of corporate-driven globalization, uh, the alternative of deglobalization, unfortunately, uh, because the mainstream left was identified, the social democratic left was identified with neoliberalism, that many of the positions advanced by the independent left, like in our case, deglobalization, Ecofeminism and food sovereignty—many of the things that we were fighting for were cherry-picked by the right, uh, especially, for instance, the the opposition to um, to globalization, and um, and and it was wedded to a kind of right-wing nationalism, which then occurred in 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 many European countries, uh, leading to the the rise of. The right-wing parties uh, in the United States, Uh, Donald Trump was able to get to power because he was, you know, he was against a trans-Pacific partnership, which, uh, you know, the trans-Pacific partnership and free trade agreements had really decimated the jobs of people in the United States, and Trump opportunistically made use of that to win those vital four states in the Midwest, which were mainly working-class votes that went him or people just sat out the elections and gave that meant that given the peculiarities of the US system, that meant that he was able to win the electoral vote. So so these are sort of the advances and retreats that have taken place over the last few years. I think I would say that the ability of progressives all over the world to coordinate their activities internationally and target certain key developments and meetings like the Seattle meeting of the World Trade Organization. That was very important, and they did make um, a difference. At the same time, we should not underestimate the fact that uh, the critique of globalization came from the left, but it was a right that made it a success in terms of organizing. The right ate the left's lunch, And uh, unless we're able to look at that very carefully on why that happened and why social democracy in its neoliberal incarnation was a big part of the problem, I think that it's not going to be very easy for us to sort of regain the initiative that the right wing now has.
0: I mean, what an amazing potted history of the last kind of several decades of of left activism. And I'm so happy to hear you make that point about how the left was kind of integrated into that movement towards globalization, but a particular type of globalization, kind of hyper globalization. Tony Blair famously saying, I hear people say we should stop and debate globalization. You may as well debate whether autumn should follow summer, like that type of stuff. And how obviously, since the financial crisis, the left has to some extent benefited against this backlash against capitalism, but it's been the right who's who's uh, who's benefited from this backlash against globalization. That's actually a point. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, th- I, I think Grace, that's that's precisely the point because although Margaret Thatcher is the figure and Ronald Reagan are the figures most associated with neoliberalism and pro corporate globalization, it was actually. Democrats in the U.S. under Clinton and social democrats in Europe there, the Socialist Party in France and uh, the Social Democratic Party in Germany, they really were the ones that were effective in terms of implementing neoliberal policies because what they did was really they were the ones that were able to persuade or get their mass parties behind neoliberal initiatives that the Christian Democrats or the conservatives would not have been able to do. Like, you know, in in Germany, for instance, the conservatives could never get the kind of labor reforms, you know, that finally the social Democrats, the SPD, when they came into power, was the one that implemented it to a tremendous dissatisfaction. Of uh, German workers. So there's this, this reality that although you had conservatives, uh, you know, definitely espousing neoliberalism, the ones who were able to translate that from theory into reality were social democrats. And that's really so unfortunate because what happened is that the independent left, people like you and me and many other peoples that had begun the critique of globalization couldn't move forward because the left was identified with the social Democrats. And so the right uh, was able to harness this sort of dissatisfaction among workers. You know, I mean, you can just put yourself in the shoes of working class people who who feel that their party has deserted them and, uh, you know, they they definitely were right for the picking. And I think that's one thing we have to give the right wing, that they were able to, you know, they were able to smell an opportunity and they took advantage Mm -hmm. of it. And boom, we've had this, like in the United States, this craziness of of this crazy president, you know, who uh, was put in power by basically... (laughs) workers in the Midwest, too, mm. who didn't vote Democratic because they associated Democrats with job exports and all of that and bad trade deals, you know, so.
0: We're, we're talking a lot about globalization and hyperglobalization here. Some people will hear that and think, oh, you know, it just means people able to go around the world, trade deals, etc. Can we just talk a little bit about the difference between, say, post-Second World War, Bretton Woods globalisation and the kind of neoliberal hyper-globalisation we've seen in the 1980s and the links it has with the instability of the financial crisis, with rising global inequality, with tax avoidance, with all these problems that we're facing today?
1: Uh, Yes, well, you definitely had uh, a period from the late 40s to the late 70s, where you had a capitalism that was informed by uh, you know a keynesian ideology where basically the centerpiece of it was a compromise between labor and capital which came into effect with recognition of unions regulation strong regulation controls on the rise of inequality Controls on finance, it was very difficult for finance, for capital to shift from one, finance capital to shift from one country to another. And basically, this was a period where, despite the fact that it was a capitalist system, at the heart of it was a kind of a compromise between capital and labor that was able to achieve levels of income equality. You know, of course, it was still unequal, but income equality that had not been there in the early part or the pre-World War II era. And basically what you really had was controlled capitalism or managed capitalism. And that fell apart in the late 70s for a number of different reasons. And what basically neoliberalism offered itself, which basically said that enough of these government regulations, let's get rid of this capital-labor compromise. You know, we need to liberate finance and all these controls over trade, so that trade, uh, you know, you know, doesn't become a destabilizing instrument. Free trade is best, so let's let's get rid of all of these artificial, quote-unquote, artificial barriers on trade. And it also had a very strong ideological component coming out of the university of chicago and and then also you know it was it was able to win key people like margaret thatcher and ronald reagan so all of those institutions of um, managed capitalism social democracy rising workers incomes all of that was destroyed back in the 80s and 90s and part of the way that they were destroyed was that social democratic leaderships uh, in Europe, uh, in Britain, in the United States, if we look at the Democratic Party as a social democratic party, uh, bought into the neoliberal ideology and basically gave it what they called the human face. Uh, and they said, OK, this is going to happen. So uh, mm. we just need retraining. Uh, Let's finesse it a bit so that it's not too brutal in its effect on people. But nevertheless, the effects were there. And uh, in in the United States, it was the Clinton administration, a Democratic administration, that basically overhauled the financial system and deregulated it. And it was Clinton that negotiated the North American Free Trade Act And it was Blair, Clinton, the socialists in France, the SPD, uh, you know, that led in the creation of the World Trade Organization. So not only were the social democratic protections of the period from the late 40s to the late 70s wiped off, but it was social democrats themselves that led this process. Like, uh, of course, you're quite familiar with the fact that the whole push of Gordon Brown back in the 2000s was to make London displace New York as the center of global finance capital. And he was lionized by the city, by the way, as you know. And this was the same. Uh, It was socialists, French socialists, that stepped into favored positions in the World Trade Organization, And uh, they were the ones who pushed and engineered the Euro. And it was German Social Democrats that transformed the German economy into a more compliant neoliberal economy. So I mention all of this uh, because I think that's a part of history that needs to be revised, that we cannot just say that the Social Democrats and labor collapsed. Uh, I think the more appropriate way of doing it is that after being co-opted into the neoliberal revolution, social democrats led in the offensive of neoliberalism. So is it any wonder, therefore, that the right-wing authoritarian right has become so strong? No, because people felt abandoned by the parties. To which their parents had belonged and which were supposed to be protecting their interests and actually failed to protect them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more about the importance of not glossing over that period in history. One of the things that obviously entrenched the neoliberal world order, particularly in the global south, was obviously the debt crisis and um, the imposition of conditionalities on lending that came sure. from the IMF and the World Bank. Now you were a key part of the resistance to that, those kind of disastrous structural adjustment now renamed programs at the time. We're now on the brink right. of a, another massive global debt crisis. And we don't see many closer to solving it now than we were back then. You know, Much many of the same institutions, the same norms are in place. And as you mentioned at the beginning of this, this podcast, the only real way to deal with it is, is a debt write off So mm-hmm. I suppose my question is, how are Global South states like the Philippines, like states in sub-Saharan Africa, supposed to deal with the current economic chaos without much greater support from the rest of the world. And if that support isn't forthcoming, could we be facing a crisis perhaps even more significant than what we were seeing in the, in the 80s?
1: Uh, yes, I would think so. You know, the problem really is that we really don't have effective international associations that would meet the needs of the Global South. At this point, you have the International Monetary Fund, which pretty much is an anachronism because it still acts in the same old way of promoting the interests of the North. And of course, the United States is there because the United States uh, controls about 17 percent of the vote and it can block any sort of reform, both at the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, So any sort of reform that would be much much more congenial to the interests of developing countries including a massive aid at this point in time the creation of special drawing rights you don't you can't have that i mean what you have are small programs relatively small programs because you really have a conservative leadership at the world bank and the imf so you don't have a global institution. And and of course, the, the World Trade Organization is practically, you know, at this point in time, you know, it was a neoliberal institution, but the United States has, under Trump, really undercut it in many ways. And so you look around and there's really, you know, no institutions that can effectively come to the aid of developing countries, especially as they suffer from COVID. And there are, however, alternative institutions now that have emerged, but they're associated with China. There's the Asian Infrastructure Mm. Investment Bank, AIIB. So you have the Chinese creating institutions, including the BRICS Bank, but they themselves are quite limited in their capacity, Uh, at this point, because one, they're new. And secondly, China has to provide most of the resources. And as we all know, the Chinese government itself, the Chinese economy is running into trouble. And besides, many countries themselves are very worried about going from the IMF to China, you know, in Mm. terms of going from the United States controlled institutions to Chinese controlled Mm. institutions. So, And especially at a time when China and the U.S. conflict is intensifying, you know, many countries are caught in the middle because there's this sense that people are being told to pick sides, either you're with us or you're against us Mm. kind of thing. So this is the situation of developing countries at this point. There's really no institution that controls financial resources that they can rely on uh, so that the way that they have to deal with this looming debt crisis is they have to negotiate separately with their creditors. And of course, that's not a very easy thing to do if you're just working one by one instead of collectively.
0: now going to go to the final part of the show, The Struggle, which is where we just quickly talk about a movement or a campaign that you might want to bring to listeners' attention. So is there anything that you'd want our listeners to to know about, to think about, to get more involved in? And if so, how might they do? that?
1: As you said, you know, the climate is the centerpiece of struggles at this point in time. And the second is struggle that you know, is against the rise of authoritarian movements and authoritarian regimes. And this is something that we are united both in the global south and the global north because Mm. we are being assaulted by right-wing figures and right-wing parties in both the global north and the global south. We have Narendra Modi in India. We have Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. And then, uh, and then you have all these people like Orban and mm. Marine Le Pen and, uh, you know, your own prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so I think that that is an area where we in the South and the North, the movements, you know, have a lot to exchange, knowledge to exchange and common tactics and strategies because these authoritarian movements some of them are really fascist movements mm. have strong similarities and and I think that we you know we really need to be able to coordinate across borders in terms of stopping them and finally the third major struggle uh, of course is the continuing one of uh, against inequality especially mm-hmm. Not just global inequality, the north and south kind of uh, dilemma that we've had for so many years, and we really need to stress that. But uh, also the rise in domestic inequalities, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, within countries, (coughs) which really has accelerated over the last several years. So I would say that those three axial struggles: uh, the climate, the rise of the right and inequality, those are the struggles that I think we really need to be able to work together across north-south lines.
0: Thank you so much, Walden. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks too, Grace. And uh, I'm very happy discussing things with you, Grace.
0: No, it's been fantastic. Thank you.